through the hallways of academia and on the face of the moon the footprints of conquest haven't left us any room to say Greetings, and welcome to the 39th edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, July the 4th, 2019. This is April Nell, reaching out to you from the woods of beautiful Northern Ontario, Canada. This month's edition focuses on global environmental catastrophes, spawned by climate change and their disproportionate impacts on women. There is a direct relationship between the violation of women's bodies and the exploitation of the natural world. As humans become increasingly industrialized, men will increasingly see women as commodities to possess, control, and dominate. With this industrialization comes a multitude of terrible and life-threatening effects to all life on the planet. Soil erosion, freshwater scarcity, and ultimately a climate crisis. So that's why we chose the month of July, a notoriously hot month across the continent in North America, to talk about and discuss global warming. We hear an excerpt of an interview Thistle did with Joni Seeger, professor of global studies and author of Earth Follies, coming to feminist terms with the global environmental crisis. Joni talks about both the impacts of climate change on women and how women are disproportionately harmed, and also about what drives global climate change and environmental destruction. In addition, we'll hear from Leah Horowitz, professor from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Thistle sat down with her in her office last month to discuss the topic of this podcast. Ms. Horowitz teaches in the School of Human Ecology at the UW-Madison and is an expert in grassroots engagements with environmental issues. Thistle asked her in particular to talk about engagement and activism around the expansion of pipelines, mining and tar sands in the Midwest, and the roles women play in those efforts. The full interview with Leah is under the Interviews tab on the WLRN WordPress site linked to our SoundCloud page. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. As always, we start off today's edition with women's news from around the globe, as prepared and read by yours truly, for this Thursday, July the 4th, 2019. Marking Switzerland's 28th anniversary since the women's strike of 1991, Friday, June 14th brought approximately 500,000 Swiss women to the streets to demand equal pay. Strikers are hoping this act of direct resistance will bring the same energy and momentum used during and after the protest held 28 years ago, which produced paid maternity leave and ultimately the Gender Equality Act in 1995. Regula Bruhlmann, Central Secretary for the Swiss Trade Union's Confederation, said the strike wasn't just about equal pay, but rather, quote, what we really want is that men and women share paid and unpaid work equally, that women and their work is valued equally or more, because at the moment, unpaid care workers are not valued, end quote. As posted by Business Insider, two young Saudi Arabian sisters had their Twitter accounts suddenly suspended after fleeing to Turkey to seek asylum and using the social media mega platform to plead for help from human rights organizations. CEO of Detained in Dubai, Radha Sterling, has been in regular contact with the sisters and details some of the abuse they have suffered. According to Ms. Sterling, the eldest daughter was expelled from high school on suspicions of being a homosexual. Upon hearing this accusation, Her mother beat her, 
threw her clothes out, and broke all the belongings she had in her room. The younger sister, while on her way home from university one day, thwarted an attempted rape by a man working with the prohibition of vice by throwing herself out of a moving car. Both sisters said they will be killed if they are returned to their family back in Saudi Arabia. On Monday, June 10th, a bill inappropriately called the Stop Violence on the Sex Trades Act was introduced in the state of New York and intends to fully decriminalize the purchasing of poor women's bodies for sex and domination. The 13-page bill was drafted by a sex trade lobby group called Decrim NY, whose stated goals read in part, quote, to shape New York City and state policy and public opinion around people in the sex trades. We seek to improve the lives of people who perform sexual labor by choice, circumstance, or coercion. People profiled as such and communities impacted by the criminalization of sex work and sexual exchange, end quote. If passed, New York may be the first state to fully decriminalize the purchase of another human being's body for the purpose of men's sexual gratification. New York State also sought to legalize commercial surrogacy in June, but the bill failed to pass through the State Assembly. Senator Brad Hoyleman, the only openly gay state senator, had this to say about the issue. I'm the proud parent of two daughters born through gestational surrogacy. Unfortunately, under the current law, my husband and I had to travel 3,000 miles to California to build our family because New York makes surrogate agreements illegal." End quote. There are currently only three states still outlawing commercial surrogacy. In early June, 25-year-old Joseph Brennan, who now uses the first name Kathy, attacked journalist and author Julie Bindle as she left an event at Edinburgh University. Bindle had just finished giving a speech about the necessity of female-only spaces due to male violence against women when she was confronted by Joseph who was yelling hateful slurs at her and attempted to attack her. A bodyguard hired for the event got in between Miss Bindle and Joseph and prevented him from making contact with her. Joseph has since been charged with threatening and abusive behavior against Miss Bindle. Students at the University of California, Santa Barbara, have started a smear and attack campaign against a feminist teaching assistant, Laura Tanner, citing transphobia, found on her personal Twitter feed and according to the campaign letter against Laura Tanner, she has promoted some, quote, material in the classroom and department that denies the reality of trans people's experiences or reifies gendered and sexed binaries as essential or real, end quote. The smear letter also claims that the material she presented in class and on her personal social media account, quote, denies the existence and lived experience of trans people, especially trans women, end quote, and that it, quote, is not only factually inaccurate, but harmful to trans students, end quote. In a very modest win for females in Scotland, the updates to their Gender Recognition Act have been stayed for further consultation. Scottish Parliament will be performing the first impact assessment of gender self-identification of any Occidental country. Some of the reforms to the new proposal will include withdrawing its current guidance for schools, which was set to give young men who identify as transgender full access to women's hard-fought-for sex-segregated spaces. Susan Smith of Four Women Scotland said, quote, we are concerned that the Scottish government is sleepwalking towards significant erosion of women's rights, both in terms of proposals to reform the GRA to allow self-identification and the failure to prevent other organizations running ahead of the law and adopting policies which are in breach of the Equality Act." End quote. She goes on to add, quote, If we cannot see sex, then we cannot see sexism. We cannot define sexuality, and it is the most vulnerable women who will suffer from this." End quote. During the 2016 Running of the Bulls Festival, an 18-year-old woman was gang-raped by five Spanish men who filmed the sadistic event and posted it on their WhatsApp group chat entitled La Manada, or Wolfpack. The footage was then used against the victim in court, and the police report said she maintained a, quote, passive or neutral expression throughout the assault. In 2018, when the men were found guilty of the lesser charge of sexual abuse as opposed to sexual assault, protests erupted all over Spain. 
The case got retried this year, and on June 21st, the sentences of the five rapists were augmented from 9 to 15 years prison time, and were all found guilty of sexual assault. In addition to his 15-year prison term, one of the violators, Mr. Guerrero, was given an additional two years for stealing the victim's telephone. June saw the release of the long-awaited final report of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls in Canada. The inquiry, which officially started on September the 1st, 2016, concluded on June 30th and released its final two-volume report in English, a special report in Quebec, and a summary in the Nuktatuk language. The truth-gathering process for the inquiry had a total of 2,386 participants. 1,484 of which were family members and survivors that provided testimony. Lesbians from all around the world were out and proud during this year's pride parades and dyke marches, holding signs that read, Lesbian, not queer, or Transactivism erases lesbians, and my personal favorite, Lesbians don't have penises. Way to go, sisters. The Women's Liberation Front, or WOLF, launched a letter-writing campaign last Saturday to support the athlete Selena Soul and her fight to change rules around boys and men being allowed to compete in girls' and women's sports. Miss Soul lost opportunities for advancement due to two male athletes who took first and second place in a girls' track competition earlier this year. To learn more about Wolf's letter-writing campaign to support Miss Soul's fight for justice, Go to womensliberationfront.org, scroll down to their news service and click on the article from June 29th called Supporting Selena to Save Girls High School Sports. And that concludes WLRN's World News segment for Thursday, July the 4th, 2019. Share your news stories and tips with us by emailing wlrnewscontact at gmail.com and let us know what's going on. Species, yeah, we're gonna die, and now there's not much time left. Not for you, not for I. Wish I'd woven a basket while I was still here. I wish I'd listened closer to the waters running clear. But no, I drove my car straight into the sea, and now there's not much time left. Not for you, not for me. the soul with her song we are more next up we'll hear excerpts of an interview wlrn's thistle did with Joni seeger last month miss seeger is a professor of global studies at bentley university in massachusetts and specializes in feminist analyses of the environmental crisis that is worldwide welcome Joni seeger to wlrn thanks for being on with us well thank you for inviting me i'm really thrilled to be here can you give us a 
an introduction to who you are, the work that you've done uh, in global studies, and specifically in women and the environment? Sure. Um, thank you. I'm a feminist geographer, which um, particularly for a lot of Americans makes their eyes roll back in their head, like, what is that, a feminist geographer? But I'm Canadian, so in Canada you can actually grow up to be a geographer. Uh, it's a real profession and um, 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 uh, activity that people um, undertake in a full-time way. So I'm a geographer, and I came to the U.S. for my graduate work a really long time ago. And I began to realize that while I was a feminist in my private life and my political life and my kind of everyday activities, when I went to the university, there was really very little um, awareness of feminism in, um, in my discipline in geography, which looks at geography as a study of, kind of space and environment, both natural and human-made, and how we interact with and shape and reflect those environmental conditions. And there was almost no feminist, I say, awareness or interest. And um, <clears throat> Geography, unlike other academic disciplines, was kind of late to bringing into it feminist analysis. I mean, English literature was there long before geography was. Um, the academic discipline of history was there long before geography was. But in the 1980s, there was a growing interest in thinking about how people interact with their environments, both natural and, uh, and human-made, from a feminist, through a feminist lens. And so I was um, among the early group, I won't say pioneers, but certainly the early group of geographers to bring feminism into geography. I, I then subsequently have moved uh, more specifically into uh, environmental fields, particularly global environmental policy. And again, though, bringing my feminism with me to that field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what does that mean exactly? Are you looking at the impacts of environmental problems um, and how women respond to those environmental problems and also how women interact with their environment specifically? Yeah, those, those are both be part of what, uh, of what I do and what the field of feminist environmentalism, what other colleagues do. Um, I, I, impacts are the probably the easiest to see again for people outside this field who are kind of wondering what we're talking about impacts you can literally in some cases see and and almost touch or feel that is um for example the terrible tsunami in um uh, the indian ocean and southeast asia in 2004 um something like four to five times more women than men died in that, quote, natural, I'm putting air quotes around the word natural, in that natural disaster, uh, four to five times more women than men died. Uh, when you look at natural disasters around the world, again, natural in air quotes, you see similar differences in impact. And that's each case you have to look at separately and kind of deconstruct why that is. Um, sometimes that's because of the intersection of um, uh, women and women's status and poverty. Obviously, people who have fewer resources are able to protect themselves less from disasters. Um, but there are all kinds of specific um, explanations around uh, women's agency, um, divisions of labor that put women and men in different places, meaning literally different places. Uh, in relation to disaster. So each each explanation, each incident requires its own explanation. But overall, you can certainly see the pattern that women and men are affected differently and experience different impacts from environmental change. Um, so that is one large area of work. But um, environmental analysis is not just looking at impacts. One of the key shifts that we all, those of us who do social analysis in the environment are trying to make, is to shift to look at drivers of environmental change. Okay, so looking at impacts is a really important and ongoing 
task for feminist environmentalists. But um, probably as important or even arguably more important is to look at drivers, what's called drivers in the environmental field, which means what are the forces that are producing the environmental changes, the environmental damage that we see. Well, in particularly in climate change, of course, the biggest single driver, there are many drivers, but the biggest single driver is the use of fossil fuels, um, that is burning oil and gas and coal um, for our um, energy uses, including, importantly, the transportation sector. So drivers of climate change would be, um, uh, fossil fuels would be pretty much at the top of that list. So one of the things that we have noticed um, we collectively, I mean, people who do environmental research, is that there are fairly substantial gender differences almost everywhere in the world um, where surveys have been done and studies have been conducted in men's and women's commitment to fossil fuels. That is, um, women and men actually see things such as fracking or continued or extended oil exploration very differently. And overall, there are places where this is not the case, but overall, women tend to be much more skeptical and much more reluctant to expand fossil fuel production, fossil fuel exploration, oil drilling into sensitive uh, ecological areas, um, much more worried about new um, uh, exploration techniques such as fracking. Um, and so that gives an interesting window into, well... On a practical level, we are all, almost all, unless you have listeners out there, which perhaps you do, who are really off the grid and don't run a fossil fuel powered car, we are all hooked on fossil fuels. Our structure of our industry, our economy, our personal economy is all fossil fuel driven. But there are larger kind of emotional attachments to fossil fuels that are not just, can't be explained just by economic rationality alone. That is, the fact that we are all hooked on fossil fuels, many people would dismiss and say, yeah, that's the economics of our, that's the structure of our economic life and our productive life, our industrial life. But I think there's a larger identification of um, masculinity and fossil fuel production, particularly in the U.S., um, that is important to think about in terms of why are we so committed to fossil fuels and to fossil fuel exploration and to putting all other considerations secondary to fossil fuel development. I think there's a strong emotional and kind of cultural identity with oil production and coal and the manliness of those industries um, that also plays a role in explaining our commitments to fossil fuels. Interesting. So the drivers behind climate change really are men as a group, as a class, and masculine values as opposed to women as a group, as a class, and feminine values. So what what is going to, I'm always into prescriptions. I, I know there's huge problems. I could, we could talk for hours about the problems. Now, you know, and we've sort of narrowed it down. It's like male domination and patriarchy really. Yeah, your, your question was a bit breaking up there, but I, I, I got the gist of it. So um, I, I often work with, a, a, in a lot of international groups, both kind of formal groups and informal groups on environmental policy. And here's one of the things to think about, that if the U.S. government or any national government that you can pretty much name, or even state government or local government, was to call together um, what's often called a white ribbon panel, you know, a high-level panel on climate change, who would they invite to the table, literally to the table? It would be chemists and geologists and atmospheric scientists and um, uh, ocean scientists. Um, the government would not call together a high-level panel on climate change that involved poets and sociologists and women's studies leaders, um, because we have all um, been trained to think that the environment, again, kind of air quotes, you hope you can see my air quotes, um, 
is the domain of the physical sciences, that understanding the environment um, is really the province of physical scientists. Whereas, now, um, I think physical scientists are great and have made important contributions to our understanding of the environment. But those disruptions and um, uh, degradations that we see in the physical environment are actually symptoms of social disruptions and social systems run amok. And if we're going to think our way and policy our way out of our environmental problems, we need to have people who are aware of social dynamics at the table as much as we need to have physical scientists at the table. Hmm. And, um, that's uh, a challenge in itself, is to have social analysis taken seriously in these big, especially the big global high-level meetings. I mean, can you imagine someone coming into the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change meetings, and saying, yeah, yeah, you know, we can um, uh, talk about the uh, physics of atmospheric changes, but we also need to talk about masculinity as a driving force in environmental policy. Yeah. It's like you would be either laughed out of the room or simply ignored and dismissed, you know. But, but I think that's one of the challenges of being a feminist environmentalist is to keep saying those things. Say, I don't know exactly how notions of masculinity and femininity affect our um, environmental decisions and our environmental choices and our environmental structures. I, 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 I can't explain it all um, specifically and precisely, but I know it's something we need to put our collective minds to. And so I think that's one of the roles of feminist environmentalists, including myself, is to, uh, is to raise these issues and say, look, this is something that needs to be considered and thought about. Masculinity and femininity are not going to explain everything. Then in some cases, they may not seem to be particularly important, but we at least need to consider them as part of the drivers of our environmental fates and futures. Yeah, and so these high-level meetings, these international meetings of experts um, that are occurring, you, you said that at this point in 2019, a social scientist would be laughed out of the room if she were to bring up the role of men and masculinity and patriarchy in, in climate change. So if, if that's the case, are these high-level meetings part of the solution? What is the solution? Do we need to just rely on ourselves on a grassroots level and plant community gardens and get to know our neighbors and hope for the best? Or, I mean, are you going to some of these high-level meetings and are you trying to uh, discuss social factors? Um, to the last question, yes and yes. And in fact, it's not me alone. There is, there is a shift. There is a kind of ideological shift where um, there is greater acceptance, even if it's with a few eye rolls and Snickers in the corner, there's greater acceptance of um, feminist analysis of environmental issues and social analysis more broadly. So it is changing. Um, yes, I think that um, response to and pushing back against um, environmental degradation and creating environmental futures that are um, healthier for everyone requires action both at well, not both, at all levels, from the local, sure, community gardens, absolutely. Um, digging up, for those people who have lawns, dig up your lawns and put in pollinator-friendly wild gardens. Um, that kind of local action can be uh, significant and important, um, all the way up through the global meetings, because <clears throat> excuse me, many of these, many of our most significant environmental problems really require global solutions such as climate change. And we can see that um, concerted global action uh, at the high kind of policy level has made significant changes in things such as the Montreal Protocol on ozone use. That actually, that agreement, that treaty really did reduce the threat to the ozone layer, the global ozone layer. Um, uh, in some of the treaties, the Basel Conventions on hazardous waste transport, um, not perfect, hasn't solved the problem entirely, 
but sets a framework for cross-national cooperation. So um, high-level policy um, and policy agreements and global meetings can sometimes seem, you know, very both boring and perhaps a little toothless, but um, uh, combined with actions all the way through these levels of individual action um, are, are really important. So I, I would never say um, don't do local, and I would never say don't do global actions. They're both needed. <clears throat> Wonderful. Well, do you have any other things you'd like to say to our largely radical feminist and lesbian feminist audience? Many of us um, activists and wanting to have an impact, uh, an, a counter impact to the impacts of global climate change or anything really that harms women in society. Sure, and and I and I think that's that's really great. And um, a shout out to your listenership. Um, um, very important that you're taking on these issues. So. Um, Absolutely, there's work you can do in your own home, literally in your own home, um, including getting rid of all the pesticides that we are encouraged to buy in our consumer culture, um, um, and as a digging up your own lawn, uh, all the way through uh, local political action. I mean, we have seen that the conservative and far-right political forces in our country in the U.S. today have organized very successfully. Um, and they've been very clever, and I say that with a, with a real groan, because they've organized at local and state levels. I mean, if you look at what's happening in reproductive rights, it's because the far right has been very effective at organizing at the state level. So I think the left and the feminist left and the lesbian left um, uh, needs to be as effective at local and state levels. So um, whether that means getting on zoning boards Zoning boards in local communities have incredible power. So being a member of a zoning board may not seem like a, um, a lofty uh, policy goal, but I actually think it's critically important. So getting involved in local um, communities, community actions, um, being an oppositional force every time you're in public uh, is really important, as well as for people who can and want to act at um, national or international levels, that's great too. So speak out, speak over, speak under, speak through the noise. Speak loud so I can hear you. I want to know you. I want to hear your real voice. I want to hear your real voice. Your real Now we turn to another interview Thistle did. This time, it took place last month in the Office of Professor of Civil Society and Community Studies Leah Horowitz in the School of Human Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Horowitz talks at length about her case study of environmental damage and social movements in New Caledonia, a small series of islands in the South Pacific. She observes how environmental damages impact women in New Caledonia differently than they do men, and also about how social dynamics that exclude women from positions of power have operated. She relates the things she has learned and observed in New Caledonia to indigenous-led environmental movements and struggles in the U.S. The full interview can be found under our Interviews tab on the WLRN WordPress site, linked to our SoundCloud page. Okay, so this is Thistle Pedersen. I'm reporting for WLRN from the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. I'm in the office of Leah Horowitz. Welcome, Leah, to the program. Thank you. So, Leah, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, what your, your job here at the university and, and what you study and what you know about women in the environment and specifically women and the impacts of climate change? Okay, yeah. So, um, I'm a, as you said, I'm a professor here at UW-Madison, um, and I have a joint appointment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies, and also the School of Human Ecology. So uh, my background is I'm a social scientist. 
actually a, a cultural geographer by training. And my re research uh, focuses on uh, grassroots engagements with environmental issues. Um, I've done some work on uh, biodiversity conservation, but most of my research has been uh, focusing on indigenous-led resistance to industry. Um, and most of my fieldwork has actually been in New Caledonia, where I was looking at indigenous people's engagements with nickel mining. Um, and now I'm also uh, doing some work on resistance to pipelines in the U.S., like uh, uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline. Wonderful. Yeah. And so New Caledonia, is that the name of it? New Caledonia. Yes. New Caledonia. Where is that located? Yeah, exactly. Most people in America have never <laughs> heard of it, right? Um, it is a small archipelago about the size of New Jersey, and it's in the South Pacific. So it's sort of um, just off the coast of Australia, just east of Australia, if you want. And they have nickel there. They have a lot of nickel there. They, it's, I think, um, something like one-sixth of the world's remaining nickel reserves on this tiny mm -hmm. island. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's actually um, a piece of Australia that broke off a long time ago, so the soils are very weathered and ancient and have a lot of minerals. Mm -hmm. And so there are mining companies that see dollar signs, and they want to go there and mine for the nickel. And what has the indigenous resistance been like? Um, yeah, well, there was... Um, so the, the people there, the indigenous people there are Mel Melanesian, which is uh, a geographical region in the South Pacific. And the people specifically on New Caledonia are called Kanak. Uh, and the, the, the mining there uh, has been going on um, for a really long time, since sort of the 1840s. Um, and primarily nickel, although there are other uh, minerals there too. Um, and what I was studying, there were these two uh, large-scale multinational projects where um, each company wanted to build a refinery um, on this little tiny island. <laughs> so um, they and they did actually end up building the refinery. So they now have three coal-fired <laughs> refineries on this little tiny island. And there was uh, certainly some resistance to that. So I was studying the two projects and comparing the, the, their reactions to them. Um, one was in the north, called the northern, lo locally in the local sort of vernacular, called the northern refinery. And the other one in the south was referred to as the southern refinery, which is kind of an easy way to refer to them. Um, and, uh, well, in terms of um, gender issues there, something that was interesting was that... Um, so in the, in the South, there was a, a movement that rose up to oppose the project. In the North, that didn't happen for a variety of reasons. Um, but the, in the South, the, the, the movement that rose up, the leadership was, was men, male, right? So um, they were the leaders of the project, but the women who were uh, involved were, played very active roles in this resistance. So... Um, for example, the refinery construction site uh, was barricaded for about two weeks, and women maintained a presence at the barricade. Uh, they did all the cooking to feed everyone, um, and they got chased by police, and they got tear gassed you know, right alongside the men. So in the, in the north, as I mentioned, there wasn't a protest movement uh, per se, and partly because um, women couldn't, culturally speaking, take on leadership roles. Um, so they didn't, weren't able to do that, but the women were still very active. They formed a group of women who were uh, fish, who liked to go and gather uh, seafood from the shoreline, and they formed to advocate for their rights to those marine resources that they depend on. Uh, and they were concerned that the industrial project would damage those resources and would kind of um, affect their ability to access the coastline as well. Um, because in, in New Caledonia, the women... Uh, tend to go out along the coastline and gather crabs in the mangroves, you know, shellfish along the coastline. And it's, it seems like it might be an easier thing to do than the men who go out onto the, into the sort of deeper ocean and do the line fishing and gather um, other resources. But it's actually really intense because they have to wade out there in, these, in this really deep mud 
and sort of poke in the mangroves for these crabs, and they're they're vicious. They have these huge. These are big crabs. Okay, <laughs> they have these huge pinchers. They're not your little tiny garden variety crabs. They're they're big. They're massive. And so then they have to grab them and sort of they slap them against their chest, and so the pinchers are going you know wild. And so they quickly have to tie them up with these um, rubber bands to keep them from from pinching them because they could do some harm. So it's uh, it's pretty intense. So that's what they do, and that's how they earn a bit of cash as well by selling these crabs in addition to eating them. And they're they are super tasty, <laughs> I have to admit. Um, so they were concerned about these resources, and so they they really did take. Eventually, over time, um, was interesting to to know was that during my field work. So I started uh, working on this in two thousand and one, and I went back pretty much every year. And I found that in 2001, the women were saying things like, oh, we know that's the men's work. We can't really speak up against this project, even though they were very concerned. And by 2000, and, um, I guess about 2007, they really were engaging with the company. And they formed this group, and they were making demands, and they were negotiating things. So they were really standing up for their rights. And that was in line with the cultural evolution of New Caledonia uh, during that, kind of during that same time period. Although it had origins way back in kind of the 1970s um, when uh, people started, Kanak people in New Caledonia started to agitate for independence from France. And so women were very active in those struggles and that kind of gave gave them the courage over the next few decades to start to fight for their own rights and also um, start to fight for their for things to happen in their communities as well as on the political scene. So they uh, form groups to advocate against alcohol abuse, um, which is mainly by being performed by men, um, against domestic violence. And so, um, you know, they were becoming very empowered, very active within their communities and also on the political scene. Uh, in fact, uh, between 2004 and 2007, the president of New Caledonia was a woman of European Caledonian descent, and the vice president was a Canuck woman. So there's a lot of change going on around this time. But what, one of the things that I found was that although the women were becoming more active and taking on these roles, the companies actually excluded the women from the negotiation process. Both companies did it. Uh, so in, in the North, for example, where there was not a protest movement, but the women were forming their own groups to advocate for what they needed, um, they found out that the project was going to destroy about five hectares of mangroves, which is as I mentioned, where they go to, to gather their, their shellfish. And so um, they were, became very upset about this, and they made it known that they were not uh, happy about this. So uh, what, the, what the company did was, rather than sitting down and addressing their concerns, they went behind their backs and they talked to the, the elders in the community, who were all senior men, and they um, took them on a little tour around and showed them what their plans were, and the men approved this. And they, you know, then they went back to the women and said, see, it's fine now because the leaders have, have approved this. And so that caused tensions within the community, but, you know, that, there wasn't a lot that they could do if the, if the leadership had, had said yeah. Now, in, in the South, it was even a little bit more extreme because the company uh, ended up negotiating and signing a pact with the protest group that had arisen, this indigenous-led protest group. So this pact was signed by four uh, protest group leaders, 25 customary authorities, and two mining company representatives, all of whom were senior men. Not a single woman actually was among the signatories. So the, and they were not involved in the negotiations. In fact, many of them didn't even find out that this pact uh, was going to be signed until after the fact. So they were pretty upset that this meant the end of their protest movement and that this industrial project was, was going to go ahead. Now, uh, in both of these cases, the companies justified what they had done in excluding women um, with the argument that they were respecting traditional customs. Because in the, you know, in the traditional society, as they argued, the men did all the decision making, right? Now, the problem with that argument is that I was discussing earlier that Canuck society is changing and women are gaining power because cultures are dynamic. They're not just fixed in time forever. So, you know, the men that I, so I, I went back and I talked to the, the men who had signed the pact. And so, you know, they said, well, of course it was only natural that they were the ones to, 
be asked to sign this document. But they also said they would not have objected if the company had held separate negotiations with the women. But of course, the, you know, the company didn't want to do that because it meant that the women, you know, women would have had their own concerns and demands, right? Um, the marine resources that I mentioned, they have different marine resources that they're concerned about than the men are concerned about. Um, but also things like increased alcohol consumption by men um, who will be employed by the company because they've seen that happen when there's an influx of money into the community, what happens. And also, you know, the risks involved in having these large encampments right next to their communities, which are predominantly full of men from outside the community coming through. So, you know, rather than having to address all the concerns, the company chose to, to use this convenient excuse of respecting custom and really just acted in their own interest. And so I call that retrogradation, right? Like pushing back against the, the changing tides of time and, and cultural change. And unfortunately, this, this kind of undermined a lot of the social and political progress that women had been making. So, so that's a lot of detail about this tiny, you know, archipelago in the Pacific that most people in the U.S. have probably never heard of. But I'd like to propose that there are broader implications from that particular story. And one is that when women are excluded from leadership, everybody suffers. And when women do have the opportunity for leadership on environmental issues, they, you know, because they traditionally have responsibilities of care, they tend to focus on things that affect the entire community. So things, you know, and especially children. So things like clean water, clean air, uh, the sustainability of wild foods, things like that. And so they tend to be less interested in, in short-term profit, like, you know, short-term employment, things like that, that are only, it's only in any way going to benefit a few people, and probably are those people who are able to benefit from those kinds of opportunities are the least vulnerable in the community to begin with. So, you know, I mentioned um, the Code Access Pipeline a little while ago, and so you know, we saw these kinds of things happening at Standing Rock where the, it was the indigenous women, right, both the youth and the senior women, who took on very strong leadership roles against the Dakota Access Pipeline. They had very strong concerns. Um, but, you know, tragically, the reality, at least right now, is that we do have a lot of senior, wealthy, white males who are making decisions that affect women in communities of color who are affected by poverty. So, you know, for example, um, with the Dakota Access Pipeline, there's a senior white man as a CEO, Kelsey Warren, right? And we obviously have Donald Trump, who told the Army Corps to reverse their decision um, about requiring an environmental impact study for the Dakota Access Pipeline. And now we have uh, Judge uh, Boesberg presiding over the lawsuits that have been brought forward. Um, and many of these lawsuits have been brought forward by Native and non-Native women. So again, we see these kinds of patterns of oppression uh, reproducing themselves based, they're based on race, gender, and class you know, that we see in other parts of the world, but they're being reproduced right here at home too. But to end on a more hopeful note, <laughs> there is a way out of this kind of oppression, and that's, you know, what I argue in my work, and that's that you, you can't just sort of change laws, right, the laws on the books. You can't just change them and just expect that that's going to create meaningful social change, right, because if people that the laws are directed to, right, the powerful elites, if they don't see a reason to change their behavior, no matter what the law says, they'll find a loophole, right, they'll find ways to get around the law in one way or another. And, you know, particularly if they can find powerful people in the government that they can manipulate to get what they want. So we saw this with the civil rights movement, for example, right? It, when African-Americans got voting rights, that didn't automatically mean that they were able to vote because, you know, all kinds of barriers got put in their way of being able to exercise their legal rights. But if you can change those ideologies and if you can change those kinds of power relations so that there is social pressure and real power behind those laws, then things start to change. So, you know, our job, I would argue, as people of all genders, of all races, uh, who care about things like human rights and the environment, our job is to just keep pushing, keep pushing to change public opinion, uh, keep standing up and taking power wherever we can. Uh, and it can be something as simple as just going to the polls and casting your vote, which can have real power for change, or something like getting involved in an activist group, you know, which there's certainly plenty in Madison, Wisconsin, but other places too. 
been to any women's festivals this year? Planning on going to some women's festivals? Us too. Your grassroots radical feminist community radio station, WLRN, wants you to join us in being the media. Our upcoming edition on 2019's Women's Festivals and Events seeks to share our stories, that is, your stories, like never before. Celebrate your womanhood, celebrate your pride by documenting the women's events you attend. Walk through the event and capture the sound of your sisters celebrating life, a concert or drum circle in the distance. See if the woman who led that amazing workshop you just attended will answer a question or two. Capture the magic of the drum circle. Record a discussion you had with your sisters. Any number of things that are the reason you attend women's events. BWLRN's and our community of listeners' ears. If you have a smartphone, you have a mic. Fight the misogyny of female erasure and lesbian erasure. Check out WLRN's WordPress site for submission information and be the media. Thank you, as always, for staying tuned to Women's Liberation Radio News. Women and girls are alive because of the earth, and the earth is deteriorating. Without a natural environment that can support and sustain human life, we all face great suffering and death, maybe even extinction. The current condition of our environment is not the result of inevitable aging or change, but of the drilling, dumping, mining, deforesting, and other destructive activities the human species led by men, has been engaging in during the last 150 years or so. We've done more damage to the planet in a century than we did in thousands of years preceding industrialization, and we're now on a crash course toward ecological apocalypse, one we may not be able to correct. How and why did this happen? And why aren't the men who have the power to stop environmental destruction willing to do it? Make no mistake, climate change is not something we individual women can recycle our way out of. It's not something we can eat or bike our way out of. Individual lifestyle changes do help, but they're a drop in the ocean compared to what corporations and governments are doing. The men who make the most impact are the ones least willing to change, all because they care more about money than they do about the very survival of all life on Earth. Males abuse and destroy the environment and females. They want to dominate, mark territory, create capital, and enrich themselves. They're parasites leeching the life force out of the earth and out of women, neither of which they can survive and thrive without. We can theorize about the psychology behind male destructive behavior, but ultimately it doesn't matter what these men are thinking. What matters is our own integrity as women and our connection to our environment. If we live in disconnection from the earth, if we allow ourselves to take it for granted the way men do, it's much easier for us to stand by and do nothing as governments and corporations inflict ongoing damage to the environment. This state of disconnection, of disassociation from the ecosystem, reflects women's own disconnection and disassociation from our bodies, which is something men train us into and want us to live with. Seeing our bodies as separate from ourselves enables us to abuse and even hate our bodies, just as seeing ourselves as separate from the earth enables us to rationalize the environmental destruction going on around us. In both cases, our state of disconnection gives men the opportunity they need to abuse, exploit, and destroy, and we as women don't enforce consequences. Our pursuit of wholeness as individual women has a direct correlation to repairing our relationship to the earth. Living in harmony with nature and the earth is a female value, while replacing the natural with the artificial, the mechanical, the virtual is the male trajectory we're currently on. 
This is not to say all digital or even industrial tech is bad, but males have reached a point where they want us to use technology to undermine nature, achieve immortality, create new outlets for their perverse sexuality, and make the species utterly dependent on digital tech the way we've always been dependent on the Earth. They want to replace the natural with the unnatural, the physical with the virtual. If their development of technology harms the environment, they consider that an acceptable price to pay, even if it means dooming the human species and all other animals on the planet to certain death. Our current use of digital technology has increased our sense of disconnection to the Earth, ourselves, and each other, making it easier to carry on in a state of dysfunction, not to mention priming ourselves to be more easily and completely controlled by men. Many women are concerned about climate change and environmental deterioration, but there are also women who don't care at all. Their apathy is the result of their addiction to the lifestyle men have made possible through destroying the earth, a result of their state of disconnection. And even those of us who care about the fate of the environment are, by and large, reluctant to sacrifice the convenience and comfort we're now accustomed to, to save said environment. But if we don't save the Earth, if we don't make ourselves whole again through reconnecting with nature and turning our backs on the artificial, we will surely die as a people, and that annihilation could be much closer than any of us care to believe. We may not be able to bring the environment back from the brink of collapse, not as individuals anyway, but what we can do right now, and with whatever time we have left, is appreciate and enjoy the nature we have access to. Not through the lens of a phone camera, or the screen of any electronic device, but in person, with complete awareness and attention. We can spend as much time in nature as possible, and not allow men and boys to rob us of that time. We can do our part to lead more environmentally friendly lives, not because it will reverse the course of ecological destruction, but because it will help us reestablish our own personal connection to our environment. Thanks for listening to WLRN's Edition 39 podcast on women and climate change for this Thursday, July the 4th, 2019. We would like to thank our guests this month, Joni Seeger and Leah Horowitz, for speaking with us about this topic. Thank you, Professors Seeger and Horowitz. It's so important to share academic knowledge in lay women's terms for all of us to become educated and agitated to fight the good fight. I'm April Now. Thanks for tuning in to WLRN. And I'm Thistle Pedersen. Yes. Thank you for tuning in to WLRN. Please take a moment to visit our WordPress site and consider clicking on our donation button to help pay for this important work we are doing and to grow our organization so we can invest in expanding our reach. If all of our regular listeners donated just $5 a month, we would become a media source to reckon with in the fight to be heard. $5 a month is a small price to pay for the amazing news and media our all-volunteer powered team provides for you here at WLRN. Thanks for staying tuned. I'm Thistle, signing off for now. WLRN wants to expand our team. We pride ourselves on being collectively organized and teaching each other about effective news media production. You don't have to have any formal journalism experience to apply to be a member of our female-only collective. Are there women you'd love to have a conversation with? Maybe you'd like to explore how to effectively conduct an interview with the support of your fellow feminists here at the station. We need women to conduct interviews, write and deliver our world news segment, transcribe our podcasts, write articles, and otherwise keep the ball rolling towards greater and greater feminist community-powered media. Send your letter of interest and resume to wlrnewscontact at gmail.com to apply. Thanks for listening. I'm Sekhmet Shiaul, signing off for now. And I am Jenna DeCordo, WLRN's sound engineer and producer. Thanks for tuning in. Next month, we will focus our program on LGBTQ Pride events from the month of June in digest form. If you have story ideas for this topic, please send them to wlrnewscontact at gmail.com. That's wlrnewscontact at gmail.com. We would love to hear your on-the-ground accounts of what went on in your world during Pride Month. Did you attend a Pride Parade? What was it like? 
Our handcrafted podcasts always come out the first Thursday of the month, so look for it on Thursday, August 1st. If you'd like to receive our newsletter that notifies you when each podcast, music show, and interview are released, please sign up for our newsletter on the WLRN WordPress site. Stay strong in the struggle, and thanks for listening. for the patriarchal kiss how will we find what needs to be shown and then after that where is home tell me where is my home cause gender hurts